So we are picking up this morning exactly where we left off last week in the book of Mark. We're still in chapter 1. We're at verse 12, and we're just going through 12 through 15. And I'll give you a second to uh, find that in your pew Bible. I apologize. Usually I'm a little bit better on, on the, the spot here, and I look up the page number for you. I didn't do that. You're going to have to wing it. It is after the book of Matthew in the New Testament. All right. Mark 1, 12 through 15. And it reads, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let us take a moment and pray. Lord, we ask today that you soften our hearts, that we may be open to hearing in your word, your will for our lives. This we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Well, I want to just begin by talking about stories. And more particularly, I just want to talk about the kinds of stories that everyone knows. Uh, for instance, if I'm going to begin a story, once upon a time, you know that I'm not going to launch into a history lesson. You're not going to expect to hear about a great naval battle or any sort of story that you'd hear on Discovery Channel or History Channel. In fact, you're not expecting a true story at all. In fact, you'd be surprised if the story didn't feature maybe a prince and a princess and possibly an evil character like a, an evil queen. And there's probably going to be some magic. And how's the story going to end? And they lived happily ever after. In fact, if somebody wrote a story that began with Once Upon a Time, and then proceeded to drone on like a news anchor at 6 o'clock, well, that's simply not going to happen, right? Because no publisher is going to print that. In the Gospel of Mark, the writer is faced with a decision, a decision of how best to tell the story of Jesus' life and his ministry. When Pastor Nathan first started talking about Mark and introducing the book, Remember when he pointed out that the writer used the word immediately a whole bunch of times. I think he said like 40, 40 times. I want you to think about that because after this gospel was written, most people, they heard it. They didn't read it. And that's just right there a difference between how it was presented and when they heard it, they heard the whole thing. So if you can imagine, they would get this gospel, they would find someone who was able to read it, they'd gather the entire assembly together for the day, they'd sit them down, and they'd listen to it, the whole thing, beginning to end. 
They didn't get it in bits and pieces like we, we get it. So the writer of Mark, they, he wanted everybody to be literally on the edge of their seats throughout the duration of this gospel. So he delivers the information in a rapid fire way. And he begins by letting them know that this is the son of God that Isaiah wrote about. And then he has John the Baptist confirm it. And then he has God confirm it by saying, this is my son. He does that in verse 11 to establish exactly who Jesus is. And now Mark says that Jesus is driven into the wilderness for 40 days and tempted by Satan. That's it. For those of us who've read the other gospel accounts, like in Matthew and Luke, when we hear that, that's what it evokes for us, right? That's what you think about, because you're familiar with the accounts in Matthew and Luke. So did the writer of Mark not share those details because he didn't know? What do you think? Did he not know? I find it unlikely that he just didn't know. What he also knew, though, was that simply saying that Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness was going to evoke this collective memory for the Jewish people. You see, the Jewish listener, they know the content of the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And when I say that they knew, I mean that they knew. Think about what your favorite TV show is, your favorite movie, your favorite book. Think of something that you can practically recite word for word, or at least the entire, you could, you could tell somebody how it, beginning to end how it goes. That's how these people know the Old Testament. And why? Because it isn't just any story. It's their story. It's like their personal genealogy. So when Mark says... Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. It's like this light bulb goes off in their heads. And they can't, all of a sudden, this is what they're thinking of. They're thinking of Moses and Pharaoh, the escape from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the wandering around in the wilderness for 40 days, the grumbling, the manna from heaven, God going before them in the cloud, God talking to Moses, Moses talking to God, Moses on Mount Sinai, with God for 40 days, 40 nights. God giving Moses the Ten Commandments. God promising them the land of milk and honey. Oh, the building of the golden calf. Them being lost in the wilderness for 40 years. Because their hearts were hard and the disobedience. Moses dying, never even getting to see the land of milk and honey. And then not getting the land and all it was promised because of their constant disobedience to God. You see, all of this would have just kind of washed over them and been absorbed very, very quickly. So along with this awareness, this story sounds very familiar. We have been here before. We were tested in the wilderness before. We failed that test. Everything has been rotten since. But see, Mark doesn't leave them in suspense. Unlike their ancestors, the Son of God, he doesn't fail the test. After 40 days, he comes out of the wilderness. He begins his ministry. So this story, it might be 
beginning the same, but this isn't the same story. This story is going to end differently. And because of that major difference, they are now on the edge of their seats. Another thought that was triggered in their collective memory comes from Isaiah. As it was written in Isaiah 43:19, God says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Again, these people are as familiar with the writings of Isaiah as they are the story of the Exodus. And they made these connections instantly. So the details of the temptations in the desert, they're just not an important thing. The important thing to the writer of Mark is that God is writing a new story. God is writing a new story. And it looks a lot like the old story, but it's not. It is not. He is making a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert as promised through his son, Jesus Christ. Can you perceive it? Can you perceive it? Now, I just want to put a little bug in your ear, something to remember for later, since we will be going through the entire book of Mark. Mark uses a Greek word for tempted, which I'm absolutely certain that I'm just going to shred right here. And that word is parazo. See, I've only read it, not heard it, so do not trust me on how that sounds. But he's going to go on to use that word two more times in this gospel. And the first time will be in chapter 8, verse 11. I'm going to read the story for you, but only so that you will remember it when you hear it again. And it reads like this. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. And then the other time is in chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And again, I'm just going to read it to you so you remember it when you hear it again. And it is this. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Well, Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. By using that very same verb in these stories, the writer of Mark wants the reader or the listener 
to remember he used it before when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. The writer is saying that Satan uses people to tempt, to trick, to test you. Don't forget it. Be aware. It happened to Jesus. Satan isn't just in the wilderness. He is inside the human heart. Remember it. Now, going back to our scripture, Jesus begins his ministry. See, we, we've already moved on. We've moved on from the wilderness immediately. We have, we're, we're moving. Going back to our scripture, Jesus begins his ministry. However, the first words to kick off Jesus' ministry are, now, after John was arrested. Does that give anybody else a feeling of foreboding? Now, after John was arrested. Positive words, those. One could argue that he was trying to simply chronicle the time of when Jesus' ministry began. But this entire gospel has a very somber note to it, so I don't think that that is an accident. For anyone who thinks that become, becoming a follower of Christ makes your life perfect and without problems, I just would like to always point you back to this uh, first line of Jesus' ministry because the one who proclaimed him first as the Christ was arrested and would later be executed. Not to put a damper on things, but being a Christian does not mean your life is perfect. Mark says Jesus began preaching the good news, though, or the gospel of God. And what he said was, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Say what? What time is fulfilled? And what does he mean by the kingdom of God? I mean, this is some tough language. My study Bible has a huge section devoted to trying to parse this out. And biblical scholars have written lengthy papers about what they think Jesus is saying here. And I debated, you know, including an extra 15 or 20 minutes for the sermon so that I could include all those biblical scholars' articles. And I decided that you would rather really not hear all that and probably rather get to your, you know, your lunch appointments and things. So I decided rather than sharing everything that all the biblical scholars had to say about it, I would just tell you my conclusions. You can thank me after the message. I think when uh, Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he's speaking to the fact that he is the Messiah that was promised to the Jewish people. You see, the Old Testament is just littered with references to a coming Messiah. So the people, they were expecting one. The prophet Daniel says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. You can find that in Daniel 7, verse 14. Micah tells it, he will be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5.2. Isaiah speaks on several occasions of the Messiah. Uh, well, just read the book of Isaiah. It is in there all over the place. But all of chapter 53 reads like Jesus' life. Verse 5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his bruises... We are 
healed. When Jesus says the time is fulfilled, now he himself is confirming that he is the Son of God. First Isaiah, then John the Baptist, then God, and now Jesus is saying the time is fulfilled. I am the Messiah. As for the kingdom of God, I will share what my study Bible says. It says, the kingdom of God refers to the period or place in which God reigns as undisputed king over the people and all creation. So because of this, we should repent or turn from what we're doing that we know is not what God would have us to do, not what God wants for our lives. Or perhaps a better way to say this is to stop doing all of the stuff that's just not bearing good fruit in our lives. You know, stop doing all the stuff that brings you nothing but misery and death. Stop doing that. Instead, turn to God and believe in the gospel or the good news. And what is that good news? What's what Isaiah was speaking to 400 years before Jesus was born? That God had a plan to save us from our sin. That death to which we were headed, his son would die for us, that we would be healed. This is good news for all who believe in the son, the Christ. You shall have everlasting life. This is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. Mark is telling the people to pay attention, lean in, listen up. Everything has changed. Instead of living by a code of rules and regulations that were set forth in the Old Testament, they were not life-giving rules. When you're judged by your works, Everything has changed. God is doing a new thing in the land. I think that the gospel account is not received, maybe perceived in the same way today because we aren't weighted down by those same rules, by those rules and regulations that the Jewish people were weighted down by. Our weights are different when we don't know what Christ has done for us. So, what if I told you that the burden that lifts for Christians is the ability to forgive yourself for wrongs that you have committed? That when you accept Jesus as your Savior, when you accept that God forgives you, that it makes it possible for you to forgive yourself. Does that lighten your load? What if I told you that it makes it easier to forgive others because God has forgiven you? What if I told you that you gain peace of mind because you are assured of forever with God? 
that knowing that makes it easier not only to face your death, but to face your life. Jesus says we need to repent because he wants us to turn away from all the stuff that brings bad stuff into our lives. He wants us just to go the other way, towards the good stuff. He says to repent or turn toward God and believe the good news. You see, God is doing a new thing in the land and in your life. He is making rivers run through your dry desert. Can you perceive it? Can you perceive it? I can't hear you. Can you perceive it? Yeah. Amen.